Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is the place where conversation matters. Very special guest today, Ms. Michael Learned, superb actress, spokesperson. Welcome to Seldom Said, Michael. Thank you, and thank you for putting the Ms. before my name. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking if you just introduced me as Michael Learned, and then a woman's voice comes on. But I'm using my lower register, so Indeed. it probably doesn't matter. <laughs> Can we start with a little bit of personal background, uh, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time and place? <laughs> okay, um, let's see. Um uh, well, I'm Michael Learned, and that is my given name from my parents who had had a couple of martinis and probably thought it was cute. Um, I hated it as a kid, and um, I now like it. And I've met other Michaels, young young women who uh, have, have my name, not my name, but, you know, the name of Michael, and they're quite happy with it. So I, um, you know, I, I could wander on, but then it would become a sort of, boring monologue about me, so why don't you ask me questions? Most certainly, most certainly. Is there a significant point in all of this personal background where you said to yourself, stage, screen, film, whatever the circumstance might be, that's where I want to find myself as an adult? Good question. In fact, it's my granddaughter's living with us. And uh, she wants to be an actress, and we were sort of talking about that very thing, that moment. I, I asked her, you know, when did you know you suddenly, when did you decide you wanted to be an actress? And she was talking about being in a school play and how that sort of inspired her. And she, something about the, the lights on the stage, and I said, you know, when I was in kindergarten, I played a mechanical doll, and... Um, they turned these bright lights on, and I loved it. I just felt it was that I the, the lights just washed everything out. So there's just you and the light, and um, I loved that feeling as a as a very early kid. And uh, but I I didn't put it together with wanting to be an actress or anything. But I just think that was my aha moment, kind of that I wanted to be in that light. At that early age, were you able to separate yourself from that light? There are some actors and actresses who have written memoirs in which they describe how they're one with the entire scene. Was there a separation in your mind? I think I was too young to kind of do anything more than really feel that feeling. And uh, and I always wanted to be a dancer. I wanted to be a little ballerina. I didn't want to be a ballerina. I wanted to be a prima ballerina. So, because <laughs> there was a little bit of ego in there. But, um, you know, I wasn't really a very good dancer, and I went to um, a school in uh, England, uh, arts educational school, and um, it was a wonderful school, really, but it was primarily for dancers. And um, every morning you would have a dance class, a different kind, ballet, and tap, or um, ballet and character dancing, or ballet and Greek, and ballet and modern. And then there was a special drama group who would have a dance class, plus, but, but um, 
a drama. Um, you know, voice production, scene study, Shakespeare, blah, blah, blah. And um, one day the teacher came up to me and said, you know, you're not really a very good dancer. So why don't you consider becoming a special drama student? So that's what I did. And uh, that sort of was it. Having someone tell you something like that, I've encountered teachers, I imagine we all have in our lives, who tell us what they say is the unvarnished truth. Do you feel that should be part of education? If someone has a dream to simply say, well, by the way... Well, I think I was a lazy dancer, and I think I sort of knew in my gut that she was telling me the truth, and that, um, and by then I'd sort of been... I was a... I was kind of lost, as most adolescents are. I was pretty young. And um, I'm very grateful to her, actually. And I don't think I was... I mean, I was a very um, sensitive kid, as most artists are. We're very, we're very fragile with our little egos. <laughs> but I don't, I don't remember that hurting me. I remember thinking, well, maybe she's right. And, um, and I think, in, in a sense, I was probably relieved. But I still, to this day love dancing, and I'm, I creak around, but I'm, I still go to a jazz class three times a week. and I look, It's the highlight of my day when I'm not working. I must admit myself that I've nurtured a love affair all my life with classical ballet. My dance style, Michael, perhaps you could recognize it by seeing others on the dance floor. I tend to just lean in a direction to a certain tempo, I'm not sure it's dancing, it's more or less survival. But there's a rigidity in classical ballet that I both admire and am somewhat put off by. Do you react well to a controlled role, or do you like to extemporaneously express? I'm pretty loose. Um, you know, I've, I've lived long enough now so that I've had a lot of experience and um, I, I don't, I don't go in to a new project knowing anything. I go in wide open, and um, and that's why I'm doing jazz instead of ballet at this late age, um, because jazz is looser, and and the pull up, tighten, um, tuck it in, <laughs> straighten your shoulders, um, you know, all of that just um, was really not what I needed as a kid. I was pretty rigid anyway. And, um, but I admire, I mean, the beauty of ballet. There's nothing nothing like it when you see a beautiful pas de deux, you know. It's, it's incredible. And uh, these people are athletes and probably slightly masochistic because you see these, the, there was something just recently on the, on, um, the public television and, and this dancer was showing her feet, which were just, it was painful to look at. It's horrible. So God bless them for their self-torture and for us to be able to enjoy the beauty of their. Indeed. You mentioned the term ego and the fact that the fragility of an artist. How important is a strong ego in presenting yourself before strangers? Well, I'd I mean, there's ego and ego, right? There's a there's a healthy ego, and then there's the ego of not feeling you're good enough. Therefore, you you're you're 
you're a, I, I mean, I talk to many actors and actresses, and um, most of us don't feel we're good enough. And so I, I, I don't know if that's part of the artistic urge is to get out there and somehow jump out of that airplane and, and hope that you're going to be good enough. And uh, does that make any sense? Maybe I'm not answering your question. I don't think I had a healthy ego. I think a healthy ego, you probably just wander through life quite settled and happy with yourself. I mean, my granddaughter the other night said something that referred to her, you know, she was saying as a matter of course, well, you know, and uh, she said, I may be pretty, but so she was just comfortable with her beauty, and she is, she's gorgeous. But I never felt good enough somehow, or pretty enough, or, and I needed people to tell me that I was. I needed people to tell me I was pretty. I needed people to clap. I needed all of that to, to make me feel that I was complete. I don't need all that anymore, um, but I did as a child. Do you feel that was part and parcel of the time we're going through so many changes in regard to women's representation? Well, yeah, um, it's getting a little out of control now, and I hope it doesn't defeat it. the purpose um, with this Me Too movement. I mean, it's a wonderful movement. It's it's great that people are paying attention, but um, I'm getting a little nervous that um, we may be overstepping um, the bounds. But, um, yeah, I guess. I mean, women were a second-class citizens for a long time. My grandmother was not. But the, the women like my grandmother were called ball busters, you know. They, um, it was, uh, I remember overhearing my husband saying to somebody, a cat talking about a castrating female. I said, what is that? They then explained what it was, and I thought, I'll never do that. So I tried my best to become the perfect 50s housewife. And I did everything the Ladies Home Journal told me to do. And it was false. Because I wasn't inferior. I wasn't a second-class citizen. It was a fraud. And it, it, it killed our marriage eventually, my, my first husband. Uh, but I sure tried. And now my husband laughs. He brought home a page out of the um, home economics, the 1950s home economics um, class book and to, on how to be a good wife. And he handed it to me, and I went for his throat. <laughs> He thought it was funny. I said, this isn't funny. Women drank over this. Women committed suicide over this. This isn't funny. <laughs> he honestly, and he said, but you're so not like that. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry for you, but you're right. I'm not. <laughs> Someone just a while back gave me a lesson plan for high school, shared it with me. It was, it was that, it might have been the exact same portfolio, but it was a description of how a wife should meet her husband at the door after work, taking off his shoes, massaging his feet. Uh, I don't think many men in 2018 would survive 30 minutes <laughs> trying to follow that. No, no, but there's still, you know, I still hear, uh, I was doing a play in Philadelphia, and one of the uh, young women who'd worked all day, who was as sort of a production assistant, and, but she'd been on her feet all day, and I said, well, thank God you got to go home and put your feet up. And she said, oh, no, I have to cook dinner for my boyfriend. And I thought, you know, really? That's, really? Why doesn't he come home and cook dinner for you? But, um, 
<laughs> so maybe it hasn't changed all that much. And I still feel um, when I'm at home and I'm I work all the time when I'm home. I'm bustling about and I'm doing my own personal career work plus housework and all of that. I somehow feel an obligation to have dinner on the table for my husband when he gets home. He doesn't ask it of me, but I feel it. I'm still locked into that um, that whole thing where you should have the martini glass chilling in the freezer and table should be set with flowers and soft music should be playing and a delicious dinner should be wafting, the odor of a delicious dinner should be wafting out of the oven and you should have perfume behind your ears and all that crap. <laughs> um, <laughs> which made women very angry and manipulative. I mean, I can't watch I Love Lucy anymore. Can you? I have not seen it in years. No, it's around somewhere, but I can't watch it anymore, and I thought it was hilarious at the time. And, you know, now to see this poor desperate woman constantly trying to do things and screw everything up, and then Desi comes in and makes everything okay. Oh, Lucy. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess that's how I feel about it. You, you seem to wrap your answers around humor and laughter. It's nice to hear. <laughs> Judging that, then, do you feel, Michael, that we'll ever get to the point of Greek theater where you as an actress can play a male role and vice versa? You know, I have... Uh, you, are you referring to King Lear with Glenda Jackson? Or? Yes, indeed, yeah. as an example. I... Uh, I have a problem with it, quite frankly, I do, because is she, is she Queen Lear or King Lear? And if she's King Lear, what is that, what is that about? Um, I don't understand it, but maybe if I saw it, I'd understand better. And I'm not colorblind either. I don't, I, I, you know, I'm not colorblind yet. It's, I'm not prejudiced in any way. I never have been, but I'm not colorblind. So I, I hope there will come a time when we all are, but I do notice the color of someone's skin, whether it's yellow, pink, white, or or chocolate. I notice it, and so it seems like a pretense to me, and I don't quite understand it. But I guess why shouldn't a woman have a chance to play this, the great role of Hamlet or the great role of Lear, um, I suppose? You know, I mean, back in Shakespeare's day, men were playing women, so I suppose it's okay. But I, I do have a problem with it. So do you feel that, for instance, the part of Othello, a Moor, can be played by anyone representing a racial cognizant? Well, if, uh, you know, that's a good question, um, because it's been played many times by, I guess, Olivia played it, and um, many, many white men have played the Moor, but they always did it, usually with makeup and you know, they didn't play it as a an urban New Yorker playing Otello. Um, and I suppose there will come a time when it won't matter, I guess, because we are becoming sort of androgynous now. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I think it's a good idea. I just am uncomfortable with it. So that's, that's the most honest answer I can give. I think it's a good idea, but I'm not totally comfortable with it. But I'm on my way out, so... I'm near the end of my life, so, you know, it won't really matter much to me. But I, for future generations, I just hope 
that 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 there are no boundaries in terms of race or or sex. In regard to age, allow me to paraphrase Barrymore in saying that you age more gracefully than I. So, <laughs> so so be that. I I am curious uh, if you like to watch yourself on screen. I don't any. I mean, I don't mind it anymore. But when I was young, of course, with that, oh, I should have played it this way, or I should have done it that way, or ooh, that stings. Um, sometimes I, I, I'm, I try to be objective, and I learned that with the Waltons being on the air. So those of you who don't have a clue who the hell I am, that's who I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, when when it was on every week, I would watch it with my my youngest son. The two older boys were teenagers, so they, they weren't interested. But um, he and I would watch it, and I learned to be very kind of dispassionate and say, oh, that didn't work, or, okay, I, I could have done it better there, or that was a little flat, or whatever, and or, gee, that was good. That was a good scene. Um, so I, I, I've learned to step back a little bit on film. I just... It's always hard to see yourself. You always wish you'd done a better job, I think. <laughs> and the editors save your save you. Uh, I'm getting a little crass here, so I'm trying to monitor my my um, words. But um, the editors can save you. They can make you look terrific, or they can make you look um, not so good. Uh, not that they try to do that, but sometimes, you know, they'll pick a shot that you go, oh, I wish they hadn't picked that one, so. We're going to have to uh, step away for a moment for a first station break. This is a marvelous conversation, Michael. You're very upfront uh, and honest and provocative in certain ways, so it's intriguing. Look forward to coming back in a few seconds. My name is Robert. The program is Seldom Said. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back, uh, This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is the place where conversation matters. I must admit to a certain preoccupation with trying to quicken station breaks, especially when a guest is as interesting as Ms. Michael Learned, who was our present guest. Michael, you mentioned the worth of editors and so forth. Have you ever looked at the intricacies of theater and film and thought to yourself that you wanted to try every part of the issue. You mean every part is a, a role or every part of film, television, and theater? Directing, acting, producing, oh, editing? No, I wouldn't want to direct. Um, I'm not a good director. Um, my, my granddaughter, again, we were talking, and she said, she, she was talking about directing, and I said, a really good director is a director, for me anyway, is a director who knows what he wants but doesn't impose it on the actor and when an actor is having trouble with a scene a director can give you a, some blocking or something that would just uh, inform the scene and uh, I've worked with some marvelous Bill Ball and Alice Rabb and some wonderful um, wonderful directors that um, if you were having trouble they would give you just one start pouring drinks for people or, or some little business that just suddenly would open the whole thing up for an actor. And um, I just don't have that skill. I don't know how to block people. I can coach an actor. Um, 
I'm good at that actually, and I love doing it. But I'm not. I'm. I wouldn't. I wouldn't know how to give a piece of blocking that would inform a scene. I. W- I don't know how to visualize the blocking before you go into rehearsal, and um, I feel that's such a gift for an actor when a director can do that without. You know, Ellis Rabb once told me that um, Rosemary Harris wanted to <clears throat> seat, sit herself down in a chair in in a, in a certain place on stage that he he had actually didn't want her to do. And so she dragged the chair. He wanted her to put it center stage, and she didn't want to be center stage. So she dragged that, he said, he, she dragged that chair around rehearsal for three weeks and finally ended up center stage, which is where he had wanted her in the first place. But he let her drag that chair around until she finally felt comfortable enough to sit where he had indeed wanted to sit the whole time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, a lot of people, I mean, he's, I'm shocked now that a lot of people don't even know who Ellis Rabb is anymore. But he directed the Royal Family on Broadway, which was a brilliant production, and um, he had his own company, the APA rep- Repertory Company, and uh, he was just a, a great friend and a marvelous director, and I've had the great good fortune to work with a lot of those people. Do you enjoy rehearsal? I love rehearsal. That's the best part. I love rehearsal. I love it. It's an exploration of... And you get to work with the words, and, you know, it's as, it's as silly as, what does Chekhov mean by that pause? Why did he put that pause there? You could spend a whole morning talking about that pause. Um, I don't know. I just, I love rehearsal. Um, unless I'm really not getting the role, I'm, I'm just lost in it, and then, then it's a nightmare. But mostly I, I love the exploration and, you know, sitting and talking about it, you know, if it's a great playwright. Um, and even not so great playwrights sometimes. It's just, it's exciting and exhilarating for me. Yeah. It's always struck me as fascinating that someone could do three years of a part on Broadway and yet find something in the character each night. Does one walk around, wine glass in hand, wondering what we'll do different during the day in preparation for that evening? Yeah, I think it's always, if you're playing a role, if I'm in a play, I, I'm always in that play. At some, you know, at some part of my brain is always there. And, um, you, but I, I'm a person who is, I discover things as I go along. I, I remember I, uh, one night we were doing, uh, at, at ACT, the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, we were doing, uh, three, Chekhov's Three Sisters, and, uh, there's a very dramatic scene where Irina, in the fire scene, and Irina gets hysterical and crazy, and Masha, I played Masha, and I was supposed to give her, pour a shot of brandy for her and give it to her. Well, one night, um, for some reason, Kitty, Kitty Wynn didn't take it. Um, she was so wrapped up in, in what, you know, in, in Irina's uh, thing, she, she, she forgot to take it. And so I'm sitting there thinking, now, what the hell am I going to do with this brandy? So I drank it, and it got a huge laugh, and, and it, but it was okay. And so we kept it in from then on, because there, is, there can be humor in the middle of, of tragedy, if you will. And um, that was sort of one of those things, where, oh, wow, 
going to use this. So for me, that's kind of, it, it's, it is a little like jumping out of a plane most of the time because I know a lot of actors, um, I was married to one actually, who actually knew which pocket his character's handkerchief would be in and worked it from the outside in, you know. He knew going in what clothes he was going to wear and and who his character was, what what the makeup would be and all of that. I don't know any of that. I learn a lot from an audience and during the rehearsal process. When you examine a characterization, Michael, people talk about motivations and goals and use the jargon. But for instance, you've been mentioned uh, in line with the character of Mary Todd Lincoln, someone that dark, when you examine that characterization, where do you go to find it? Inside. I've had my dark years like everybody else. Um, um, the trick is to play someone like that and find a way to love that character because a lot of people think Mary Todd Lincoln was a horrible person, and I personally think she was a, a woman living in agony. And uh, so you try to find a way to play against um, against the line. I mean, you know, one of the earliest lessons you learn, uh, and you, you know all this, obviously, but um, is don't try to cry. Try not to cry, because that's what most people in life do, is they're if you watch uh, just what's been on television recently, um, I don't think the gentleman was trying to cry. He was trying not to cry, and he was overwhelmed by his feelings. And that's um, that's one of the first acting lessons I ever learned. Was because I always thought, oh, I, I I'm one of those people that, who don't I don't cry easily pub- publicly. I I can cry by myself, but not easily. When it's called for on stage, I used to have to blink my eyes before going on if I had a very emotional scene and try and get mascara in them so the tears would flow. And so now I guess I've had enough life experience where I can call on my, my past and bring some tears. I've often found myself late in life admiring silent film starters, people who could show emotion without a word being spoken. And I'm just picturing in my mind as I'm speaking to you, Mary Todd Lincoln in her later years in her bedroom with the shades drawn. Do you find it difficult to act without words? Oh, that's, a, that's such a good question. I have to think about that a little bit. Um, no, but the because I studied mime, too, in this school, this wonderful school that I went to and cried the whole time. I was so homesick. I cried for, from morning till night, but I look back on it now with such enormous gratitude because it was such excellent training. But but if you're not speaking and you're on stage, you, you need to be totally present, and yet you don't want to pull focus. Um, I'm still... I mean, I I really get furious with actors who just have no sense of where the focus should be in a in a scene, and they just want to be the focus. So um, I guess I'm just rambling on. I I don't quite know how to answer that question. It's such a good question. It's interesting. But yes, you should be able to to act without words, and sometimes. 
the more subtly you do something, the more moving it can be for an audience, actually. What movement? Don't you? It's much less emoting than it was in the past. It's less grand, if you will. Indeed. It's a rather interesting answer. Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I feel helpless. It's like, it was a good question. I'll think about that one. Indeed, I'd be very curious at a future date what you really feel about it. I know that I find myself looking at Chaplin's face and realizing he's acting with his eyes, his eyebrows, his nostrils, his mouth, and obviously not saying a word, just the piano in the background. It is intriguing. That's why he's famous, yeah. And, and yes, for film, certainly. You, but, but you also have to sometimes... With film, you, I mean, now the screens are so huge that every little eyebrow twitch becomes enormous. And for me, that's the hardest part, is not overdoing, you know, um, having to have it all happen. I, I remember seeing a scene, it was the beginning of a movie, and I can't even remember what the movie was, but it was Brad Pitt, and during the credits, the opening credits, he was just standing, leaning against a car, eating potato chips. That's all he did. He just ate potato chips. He didn't act. He wasn't crying, laughing. Or, he was just eating potato chips. And I couldn't take my eyes off him. And I thought, that's, that's good. Yes, <laughs> you know, and, and wasn't it um, Hitchcock who said a, a, a really good um, film actor is an actor who knows how to do nothing well? Hmm. That says so much. Yeah. Have you ever witnessed a performance, or even created one yourself, Michael, that you could honestly say after the fact, that is as good as it gets. This is near perfect. Oh, sure. Uh, I have, but I can't think of one right now. And in my own life... um, the production that Alice Rabb directed at ACT, which was um, Merchant of Venice, in uh, kind of like Dolce Vita. And when he first told me about it, I started laughing. He said, "You're going. We're going. To, I'm going to set it on a yacht, and Portia's going to come down with a turban on and a caftan, and her servant's going to hand her the phone, and she says pronto." And he went on, and we'd had a few drinks, but. Um, I, I just started laughing. I thought it was hilarious. and But indeed, it was one of the most wonderful productions I've ever been in. And there were times, Peter Donat, my first husband, played Shylock, and there were moments in the play where this audience was so quiet that literally the hair on the back of my neck would stand up. I mean, it was, and it was like we had all transcended into this magic bubble of the play it was it was it was quite memorable <laughs> something i'll never forget that production and i think he took it to new york and it didn't quite work as well who knows why i, I guess sometimes you can't recreate something he should have tried it differently in new york rather than trying to recreate something that worked in san francisco i'm looking at the clock and we have four and a half minutes before our second break which is disturbing. This is a rather intriguing conversation. Do you feel, Michael, that there is a danger, and I've asked this of singers and performers and dancers, 
Do you feel there's a danger of leaving too much on the stage? Leaving too much or doing too much? Leaving too much in that there's an emptiness that one can't return to on the next night. Oh, you mean when you go home and you're empty out emotionally? In part, yes, too, yes. Yeah, um, yeah that can happen for sure. Or, but, and this is kind of off what you were asking, but, you know, the worst thing for me is when I think I've done a good job, when I walk off the stage thinking, wow, I really, I really did it tonight. It was fabulous. And it, without fail, some member of the crew or somebody will come up and say, what the heck were you doing out there tonight? You were so slow. And, well, you were putting the audience to sleep. And other nights when you think, oh, I just was... Oh, it was terrible. God, it was awful. And then somebody will say, I couldn't get up out of my seat. I was so moved. And I don't think we really, as actors anyway, um, for me, I don't always know when I've hit it and when I haven't. But there are times where when you've really been in some profoundly emotional um, role that it, it's... Uh, you walk away feeling drained, yeah. The idea of someone at stage left telling an actor or actress that they weren't effective sounds cruel to me. Quick answer in the two minutes we have before the break, Michael. How much honesty do you really want? Well, I'll give you another Ellis Rabb story. Um, we went to see a production of St. Joan, and all of my friends... Everyone I knew, I won't even mention names, but everyone I knew very well, very good friends were in it. And it was the most embarrassing production I have ever seen in my life. And all these actors were up there prancing around, thinking they were just wonderful and marvelous. You could feel it. I could feel it in the audience. And I just, I, I, my head was in my, my hands most of the time. And at the end of the play, I said to Ellis, I can't go back. I just can't go back. I can't. I can't find anything to say. And he said, you will go back, and you will give the best performance of your life. <laughs> That's marvelous. <laughs> <laughs> and he was right. And so, yeah, no, I don't, it's, sometimes it's helpful, but usually not, certainly not on the night, um, you know. But some people have put me down, and it, it made me think, and it was good for me. But it's painful. Do you believe, then, that actors should be judged? Of course. I mean, we all, we're all... I mean, yeah, I think it's helpful. Um, I hate... I, I mean, a bad review can put me in bed for the day, and I've had my share. <laughs> but, um, you know, if you look at it and try to be objective about it and say, well, maybe there's something to look look into here. How can I make it better? Um, but it, to say it doesn't hurt, it hurts like the dickens. It really does. <laughs> uh, when you've put your heart and soul into something, and that, you know, I always feel terrible myself when I don't like something, and I think these people have been working on this for weeks and months, and or even a bad movie, you know, where a year has gone into it and millions of dollars and heart and soul, and you come out and go, oh, that was a 
terrible. My, Michael, if you would uh, allow me to play the distressed suitor and run from the mic. We'll be back in a few moments. These thoughts uh, that you've been presenting, I'd love to have you elaborate on in our last segment. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. Uh, this is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is an excellent interview with Ms. Michael Learned. Michael, I imagine at some point in any interview that you've ever had, someone is going to ask you the next question. What are your memories of Olivia Walton? You know, she was an iconic character. And at the time in my life, I was raising my three sons and two of their friends. So I had literally five teenagers living at home. And, um, you know, I resented sometimes spending hours on the set where all I did was pour coffee and say, more coffee, John. And, um, time for bad kids, pass the salt, please, you know, whatever. I, but I had to be there. I had to be in the scene because they wanted the presence of the mother in the scene. But, you know, for me, it was just a, a long, tedious bore. Um, but I look back on it now with such enormous gratitude. And, you know, I have people who lit, say that that show literally changed their lives. And um, I think I think it has. I, I think Earl Hamner has left a legacy for a lot of people who were troubled or in trouble, had terrible childhoods, who who learned um, a lot from that show. So now I feel very humbled to have been part of it. And and the cast and I are so close. We love each other dearly. And it's like I've been given a second family. And uh, I probably wouldn't be on your show if it hadn't been for that show. So I'm I'm. I'm extraordinary, very, very grateful, but um, it was hard in the beginning because I had just come from playing Private Lives and Cleopatra, and suddenly I'm in an apron with my hair pulled back in a bun, pouring coffee for people, you know. (laughs) I wasn't happy. (laughs) And, um, you know, doing an hour series is, uh, you earn every, every penny that you make. I look at some of these shows that are on now where, you know, uh, the stars are in every scene, and those people work long, hard hours. They're so whatever they may. And we made nothing on the Waltons. We used to laugh and say, Lorimar Productions' idea of a party is one beer and 12 straws. <laughs> <laughs> when one considers that program, Michael, the thing that always struck me, and I saw it, uh, obviously, uh, when it first came, the personalities of the actors and actresses, people like Will Gear, John Waite, uh, people who seem to have histories that were reflected in their performance, yourself included. Have you ever worked with such an eclectic group, political activism and so forth? Um, well, most actors are. I've never been political, really. I'm, uh, I'm sort of, my father said, people who sit on the fence are the worst offenders in the world. <laughs> Take a stand, even if it's wrong. And um, <laughs> and I've always been kind of wishy-washy. I guess we're called independents or something. But, um, you know, Ralph was definitely um, political, as was Will Gear, And um, I, I admired them for their, because they, they marched. But, you know, somehow I would march for civil rights. I would do all of that. But I don't get into the politics of it. It's just 
the humanness of it that I care about. So um, that sounds a little kind of self-aggrandizing, but you know, I'm not an intellect, and I don't think I don't think I know. I think we know so little about what's really going on backstage, if you will, so that um, I prefer to kind of keep quiet. I vote, and I do my civic duty, and I try to keep quiet about the rest. But Ralph liked being out there, you know. Um, that was his challenge, and he loved it, and I loved him. We were very close. I'm often reminded in a personal recognizance of a member of my family who was literally raised on a hillside in West Virginia. Does the characterization of the Walton strike you as perhaps nebulous in the sense that it's the perfect life or as America should be, and even when the devil comes to the door, he's met with affection? Yeah, I think think that is kind of... I I mean, I do think the show was idealized in many ways, but we, we fought... It, you know, Earl was writing about his family and friends and his mother. And so we we used to fight with him tooth and nail when we were having script readings and say, Earl, I said, didn't your mother ever make a mistake? Didn't she ever punish the wrong child? Didn't she ever, you know, and um, he said no, but he was lying <laughs> because everybody makes mistakes as a parent. So we did struggle to try and make these people a little more human. And um, But uh, so there's a place for idealism, I think. And um, the show was a story. It, it told stories. And there's very little of that now on, on television. Storytelling. Just storytelling. And I think the show, looking back on it, I think it should be shown in schools. Because it really is a history of this country back in the Depression with the Dust Bowl cousins and the book burning and the beginning of World War II. And, you know, it, there was an awful lot of American history in that show. So I'm proud that I was part of it. And it was all due to Earl Hamner. What then would you feel is the more difficult process, writing the book or adapting it for the screen? What, my book or somebody else's book? Yours as well as anyone's, perhaps even Mr. Hamner's. Well, Earl, I think it evolved. You know, he did The Homecoming, which is a classic, with Patricia Neal. That was the, people say, was it the pilot? But I don't think it was intended particularly as a pilot. It was a movie of the week back when they had those. And um, and it's just wonderful. It, it holds up. Every time I see it, I think it's... I, I like it better, actually, every time I see it. And uh, the kids were charming and real, and Patricia Neal was gritty and wonderful, and um, Ellen Corby was in it, and uh, then um, Ralph Waite's part was played by... I can't remember his name. But anyway, um, it, it still holds up, and I'm not sure Earl had planned it becoming a series, but it did, and it evolved. I mean, I think it started out, the first show, we sat, Ralph and I sat laughing through it when we saw the screening. We both looked at each other and said, this is ridiculous. It was John Boy shooting a bear and um, fighting the bear, you know, <laughs> some guy in a bear suit, and we thought, this is we were so cynical about it and then 
somehow it caught on and the critics liked it and pushed for it and I just think it got better and better as it went along. But every show on television, I think, usually goes for one season too long, don't you? I agree with that. It becomes stale. Yeah, I think so. And um, there's a joke, a Walton's joke, going around that you know they would say, "Well, let's have a wedding. Well, let's have a baby. Well, let's kill the baby." <laughs> My God. Just, kind of running out of ideas and um, as the kids got older it wasn't the same show anymore even though God knows they did their best and uh, it just wasn't the same and I think we tend to do that here we milk it to the very last drop whereas in England they do limited series which indeed yes leaves them fresh in your mind I've often been struck by the fact that it feels at times with certain programs as an affair that has gone on too long people just staring at each other and almost seeking the lines. You can sense the apprehension and the way people speak. It's unfortunate because it leaves a bad taste and a bad memory. It plays havoc with the memory of the good times. I agree with you totally, totally. You mentioned in passing that phrase, my book. Can we talk about your literary experiences? Well, I, I'm struggling with this darn thing because everybody says you got to write a book you got to I mean I have had an interesting life and I've known interesting people not necessarily in in the business my father worked for the CIA and there were we traveled through Europe we lived in Austria I went to school there I went to England to boarding school you know there's a lot of um, stuff that happened in my childhood and so I write little bits and pieces here and there but I'm not really a writer and um, I I'm sort of working on a book, and sort of part of me says I'd like to be the only actress who hasn't written a memoir. So I don't quite know where I'm going with it. But um, but somebody, I, I have a person who's trying to put all these little patchwork pieces together and sew them together and make a quilt and see what we've got. Do you feel then that your life, as well as any others, is just a collection of vignettes? Yeah, don't you? Indeed, I about do. your life, yeah. It is. It's kind of like a little... little. I, as I get older, too, I, I was saying to my son, I said, I, I, I feel like I'm reliving my life in color snapshots, you know, that just pop through my mind. Um, I, my first husband, Peter Donat, just passed away, and it hit me much harder than I, I re- would have thought because he's been so much a part of my life since I was 16 years old. He's the father of my kids, and um, and we haven't been together for thirty years, but um, or more, forty years maybe. Um, but still, he was a huge part of my life, and uh, you know, I keep reliving the, our first child and taking the kids to go to the potty at night and playing in the leaves. The kids, you know, all of that, and they're like these little color snapshots in my my mind, and. Um, so, yes, I, I guess there are. There are eras, if you will, when you've had a long, good life. There are sort of this era and that era and this marriage and that marriage. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Memory can be a lovely rose. I wonder, too, and we're approaching to the end, unfortunately, is there a favored role 
performed or desired that you still consider, Michael? Oh, there are a lot of roles I would have loved to play, but um, what good does that do? Um, I'm too old, and um, you're right, the roles are limited, but it's funny, I was talking last night to someone, and they said, you know, the last couple of things you've done are love stories. And I said, isn't that interesting? Uh, I've done two films, um, with, um, and I'm doing a, another play with Charlie Robinson, and they're both African-American actors, and we're all in our 70s, and they're love stories. So it's not over yet. It's just near the end. I shall be honest with you, Michael. I think at times we as a culture overemphasize age. We consider that playing a, a love scene or an emotional scene where feelings are exchanged at the age of 70 or 80 is inappropriate, and it seems as appropriate in any other time chronologically in one's life. What is your reaction to that? Well, I don't, I don't know that I want to see two decrepit old people necking for any length of time, but I think you can handle uh, a love story. In a, in a, I mean, the English do it very well. They write wonderful roles for older people, older women, and uh, older men. Because we, we are, we are like, I've said this before, and I'm repeating myself, but we are like leaves just before they fall. We're at our best and most beautiful when we're old. And um, I think older people have so much to offer and in, in our wisdom and our wit and our flaws, all of that is interesting, and um, I think we're just beginning to take a look at that in this country. Taking that a step further, if you were to encounter that 16-year-old young woman thinking of appearing on stage and on film, what advice have you learned in life that is most importantly and should be shared with that person? What would you say? I would just say be be tender with yourself, I guess. That's what I'd say. Be tender. Because I think we're all so hard on ourselves. And young kids today, um, they're passionate and marvelous, and um, they can be hurt so easily. And they hide it behind arrogance or anger or whatever, but I think... Um, so you take that on. If, if that's what you're being given, that you take that on about yourself and you think you're not worthy. And somehow you just have to learn to take a compliment and rub it in, rub it in, be tender. That's what I would say. I can relate to that feeling. It does seem that vulnerability is our culture's original sin. We tend to make ourselves so open and then we wait for the reaction, and we're concerned about what that reaction might be. Do you have any immediate plans for the future that the listening audience should know? Well, I'm going to be doing, um, <laughs> here in California, I'm going to be doing uh, Driving Miss Daisy at the Laguna Playhouse in Laguna Beach, and I'm going to be doing a play in, Can in Overland Park, Kansas, at the New Theater in uh, August and September with Charlie Robinson. I'm looking forward to that. And um, I don't know, there are a couple of little things here and there. 
and I don't mind not working. It's just uh, I don't I do mind not working for too long <laughs> because I get caught up in the old housewife thing, and I'm really bored with that. But I do it. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back to work. I start December 26th rehearsing for Driving Miss Daisy, and it's my fa- I I just love the play. It's a wonderful play. It's so much better than. I have to say the movie, I think. It, it's funnier, it's deeper, it's it's about unconscious bias. And I think unconscious bias is very interesting because we all have it somewhere and we don't even know it. Um, and it has to be examined, you know. And she, this woman, it's driving Miss Daisy and Hope does the driving and Daisy takes the trip. We're within a minute and a half. As I said, it's an unfortunate circumstance, product of the age. I am reminded, and this perhaps would require a quick answer, and I must apologize for that. I've heard over and over again that line, oh, you're my best friend. How do you feel you're going to play that? Well, I am, but because that's what... Her, that's her epiphany, really, is that it's taken her all that time to realize that this man is a man that she, who loved her and whom she loves. So it's taken her... She reminds me so much of my grandmother, who, who loved a man who worked for her named Ambrose Lewis, and um, she was the boss, but he was really the boss, and it was a very interesting relationship. And times have changed. They haven't changed enough, but hopefully by my granddaughter's kids, when she's her kids, it will, it will have changed and we will be colorblind. And I, God, I hope for that. I can share that as well. Let's hope for the best and linger on the past for a moment or two. I thank you for appearing on this program, Michael. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it, actually. You made it easy. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Take care. You as well. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Robert.